specifically addressed to churches in more than one city. Neither Acts nor Galatians mentions any cities or peoples from the northern part of Galatia, so it's likely Paul addressed this epistle to churches located in the southern part of this Roman province, but outside of ethnic, um, the ethnic Galatian region. Acts records Paul's founding of such churches as um, Basidian Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. It's clearly evident that Paul wrote this book. Paul was born in Tarsus, a city in the province of Cilicia near Galatia. Under the rabbi Gamaliel, Paul received a thorough training in the Old Testament scriptures and in the rabbinic traditions at Jerusalem. A member of the ultra-Orthodox sect of the Pharisees, he was really one of first century Judaism's great scholars. Um, on the timing, in chapter 2, Paul described his visit to the Jerusalem Council of Acts 15, so he must have written Galatians after that event. Since most scholars date the Jerusalem Council about A.D. 49, it was likely written shortly thereafter. In addition, the churches Paul addressed had apparently already been established before the council, uh, and so the churches of southern Galatia fit that time, and uh, having been founded during Paul's first missionary journey uh, before the council met. Um, the Galatians provide unique historical information about Paul's background. We have his three-year stay in Arabia, which Acts does not mention, his 15-day visit with Peter after his stay in Arabia, his trip to the Jerusalem Council, and his confrontation of Peter in chapter 2. When we look at the first verse, Paul, an apostle, in the first few words, we get an inkling of what he is about to lay on this audience. Paul had a twofold object in writing this book. Number one, they had disparaged his authority. And number two, they had fallen back from the true spiritual understanding of Christianity, in which all was due to divine grace and love manifested in the death of Christ, to a system of Jewish ceremonialism. And so from the very outset of this epistle, in the salutation itself, the apostle meets them head on on both of these points. On one hand, he asserts the divine basis of the authority which he himself claimed, and on the other, he takes occasion, and this is important, to state emphatically the redeeming work of Christ and its object to free mankind from those evil surroundings into a grasp of which the Galatians, again, seem to be falling. The title of apostle is to be taken here in its strictest sense. Paul insists upon his equality in every respect with the twelve, being not, of course, one of the original disciples, but an apostle nonetheless. Paul, with deliberate incisiveness and careful definition at the beginning of his epistle, defends his apostolic dignity because doubt had been thrown on it by his opponents in Galatia. The attack was highly personal. In the phrase in verse 1, in the phrase Jesus Christ and God the Father, 
He denies that his apostleship proceeded from men or it came by means of a man. It was neither of human origin nor was it a human, the medium of conveying it. The expression God the Father is one where we actually have two nouns in simple apposition. In other words, this construction indicates an identical exchange between both nouns. To put it another way, God is not affirming or attributing a quality to Father, but rather it identifies him as such. So the correct translation of this phrase would be as follows. Paul, that is, the apostle, sent not by men nor by a man, but by Jesus Christ and by God, that is, the Father who raised him from the dead. Why is this important? The word God, the Father, Patros, which together has a a proper name, and we see this in, in Ephesians, according to the context, presents God as the Father of Jesus Christ, not as a Father generally, nor as generally our Father. In, in Ephesians 6, it says, Peace be to brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father. That is, God who is the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is found in other areas of Scripture. And the Father is named after the Son by the way of escalating a climactic comparison. And we see this in Ephesians 5.5. 5. For this you know with certainty, that no sexually immoral or impure or greedy person, which amounts to an idolater, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So in describing the superhuman origin of his apostleship, since it didn't come from man, Paul proceeds from the higher to the highest, without of whom Christ could not have called him. So here we see in the declaration that Paul was called as a legitimate apostle and so qualified to write this epistle could only have come because of the higher one, Jesus Christ, and then the highest in God the Father who called him. To go further with this, Paul was called to be an apostle by Christ who had been raised up bodily from the dead by the Father. So that these words additionally involve a historical confirmation that God, that is the Father, in a special relation is thoroughly reassuring of the full apostolic commission of Paul. They are not a mere designation of God as an originer of the work of, of redemption, which of course is true, but the addition is intended to awaken faith personally in Jesus as the Son, and God as our reconciled Father. John five nineteen. Therefore Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things that does, the Son does so in like manner. Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. There is one body, one spirit, and just as you were called to one hope 
when you were called one faith, one Lord, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all. Greek is not a, uh, a bludgeon for preachers to silence any questioning of their sermon. I want to make, you very, make that very clear to you. Um, we're, not, we're not up here pretending to be that we're, we're geniuses, which we're not. I'm not, certainly. Greek is a powerful entry into seeing the patterns and emphasis present in the text. It opens up the text in all its nuances, which English simply can't do here. That's why I wanted to spend time with this. So Paul builds a case systematically right out of the blocks, attacking those directly who would question his authority. And so we see this is no self-appointed, self-anointed teacher by whom the Galatians are addressed, but an apostle who, like the twelve, had received his commission, not from any human source or through any human agency, but directly from God and Christ. This is no cool treatise of an academic nature. It is a hot, volatile, righteously angry presentation we're going to be studying. The Apostle Paul writes this under tremendous duress, distress. He is righteously and extremely angry. From his point of view... If you reject Paul, then you are not getting the rescuing, saving gospel. If you shut down Paul, if you deny his authority, there's no other source right now. There are not media organizations pumping out the gospel. There aren't other preachers preaching the gospel. It's absolutely critical at this point in AD 49 that Paul have the authority and that people believe that he spoke authoritatively on behalf of a rescuing savior that we see in the first few verses of this text. And that's why at the very beginning of this letter, he can't get more than two words out of his mouth, one in his name and the other is his title, apostle. So why is all this important? As a church, as in different epochs of time, different, different times, we have been and will be bombarded with counterfeit Christian thinking. In the 21st century, it's powerful online media pretending to speak for or on behalf of God. As with the Bereans, we must be discerning. Not that we stop listening to religious blogs, but we are to listen critically as to determine the truthfulness of what is being said. Is it evident the speaker has been clearly and properly fitted by God in his authority to say what he is saying? There was a Gallup study out this last week that belief in God over the last 20 years has dropped from 91% to 74%. I I still find that number high. Belief in hell from 74% to 59%. Most sadly, only 25% of anyone without a particular religious or church affiliation believe in any religious entity at all. Where there is no fear of God, sinners slide blithely into hell. And why is this? 
years, even decades of moral relativism have eroded our cultural understanding of truth as a knowable, agreed-upon concept. And in our modern world, all we're left with is an infinite supply, now an infinite supply of information. And this leads us further and further away from God to a world of no hell, no God, no rules. It's not new sin. There's nothing new under the sun, but lies and deception are now more accelerated by media that can cherry-pick its own forms of what it terms information and what is disinformation. Combine that with the fact we've probably never been more prosperous as a people with a side effect of increased intellectual laziness and short attention spans, particularly regarding the scriptures, unless they are delivered in short and pithy sound bites. And people, that's why it's so important that we study Galatians and the word in general to come to an understanding of a powerful, clear proclamation of the gospel, the good news, and its implications for disbelief. It's why the word gospel is used five times in the first chapter alone of Galatians. And this brings me to um, what I want to spend a good part of uh, this morning's time with is talking about what the Judaizers were attacking, the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Not just here in Paul's writings, but in its importance as it was then rediscovered in the Scripture during the Reformation. The doctrine of justification by faith is, according to Luther, the center of Paul's theology. Calvin saw the doctrine as the principal hinge by which religion is supported. It is defined as that gracious and judicial act of God, whereby a soul is granted complete absolution from all guilt and a full release from the penalty of sin. Romans 3, 23 to 25. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness. This is what we're talking about this morning. Because in God's merciful restraint, he let sins previously committed go unpunished. It was this rediscovery of the judicial, forensic nature of justification that gave birth to Protestantism and delivered the church from the Roman Catholic concept of justification as infused righteousness. So Paul wrote Galatians to counter false teachers who were undermining the central New Testament doctrine. Ignoring the express decree of the Jerusalem Council, they spread their dangerous teaching that Gentiles must first become Jewish proselytes and submit to all the Mosaic law before they can become Christians. One could not be saved without circumcision and adherence to the Mosaic ceremonies, observance of the Sabbath, and they were believed that you couldn't be sanctified without continuing to keep all external ceremonial rules. Their false gospel was penetrating the brethren, and Paul went right there to the issue. Shocked by the Galatians' openness to that damning heresy, in this letter, Paul defends justification by faith and warns those churches 
of the dire consequences of abandoning that essential doctrine. In writing this book, it is the only epistle that Paul wrote that doesn't contain a commendation for its readers. Galatians, of course, is very similar to the book of Romans in its discussion of this. Um, Paul defends that doctrine um, in, its, uh, in, in its theological uh, and, and practical ramifications as well in Romans. He also, as we've seen, defends his position as an apostle since, as in Corinth, false teachers had attempted to gain a hearing for their heretical teaching by undermining Paul's credibility. I want you to go over with me, if you would, to 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 7. But indeed, you are bearing with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. For I betroth you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his trickery, your minds will be led astray from sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, this you tolerate very well. For I consider myself not in the least inferior to the most eminent apostles, but even if, I have, even if I am unskilled in speech, yet I am not so in knowledge. In fact, in every way we have made this evident to you in all things. Or did I commit a sin by humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached the gospel of God to you without charge? Now, if you would please go with me over to Philippians 3, 1 through 11. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write this again is not a bother for me, and it is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, exalt in Christ Jesus, and do not rely on human credentials. What is circumcision? A daily reminder to Hebrew males of God's faithfulness. Though mine, too, are significant. If someone thinks he has good reason to put confidence in human credentials, I have more. I was circumcised on the eighth day from the people of Israel and the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. I live according to the law as a Pharisee. In my zeal for God, I even persecuted the church. According to the righteousness stipulated in the law, I was blameless. But whatever gained to me, I consider these things as lost because of Christ. More than that, I am now, to, I am now regard all things as lost, compared to the far greater value of knowing Jesus, Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. Indeed, I regard them as dung, that I might gain Christ. And here it comes, folks. Justification. And be found in him, 
Not because of having my own righteousness derived from the law, but because of having the righteousness that comes by way of Christ's faithfulness. A righteousness from God that is based on Christ's faithfulness. People, I ask you, do we really appreciate Christ's faithfulness? Or is it so taken for granted that we just sort of skate by, ignoring his, ignoring his daily provision until a trial comes, and we throw up our hands in despair as though the rug was just pulled out from under us and ask, or better yet, because we're Americans, demand to know what just happened. Paul is considered the great New Testament apostle because he's given the responsibility for clarifying the gospel in this most important way. And so he has written all his epistles, which in one way or another enrich our understanding of the, the life, ministry, death, ascension, and return of our Lord Jesus Christ. All of which encompasses the glory of the good news, folks, the gospel. And that's why it's so important for us to understand the gospel as it is revealed through the Holy Spirit in this letter. Now, historically, Galatians itself had a very, very strong impact on the Reformation. Over 500 years ago, uh, in 1517, a monk, an Augustinian monk and priest, Martin Luther, launched the Protestant Reformation. He did, did, he did this by writing up his 95 Thesis, all of which condemned, in some practice, the Roman Catholic system. He posted these on the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany, and with this posting, essentially launched the Reformation, shot heard around the world. Because he saw what was wrong with his mother church, and in particular, when he came to Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, the just or the righteous shall live by faith. He understood for the first time the true gospel. Now this statement, of course, is drawn out of the Old Testament. We see this in Genesis 15, 1 through 6. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be great. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Abram said, since you have given me no son, one who has been born uh, in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, this man will not be your heir, but one will come from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look towards the heavens and count the stars. If you are able to count them. And he said to them, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Habakkuk 2.4 Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right with him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Romans 1.17 For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Galatians 3.11 
Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for the righteous man shall live by faith. Hebrews 10.38 By righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. So this isn't some small peripheral doctrine, not some small statement, some obscure um, idea. Justification by faith is vital to the heart of our faith, our life, and our ministry. The very critical statement, the just shall live by faith, that launched Luther's understanding of the gospel, brought about his salvation, and gave force and power to his ministry. But let's back up our, our, our time on this a little bit. As, as you might surmise, before Luther was a clear-headed theologian, he was a confused monk. Before he was a powerful force, like all of us, he was a tormented failure. Previously, Luther had no peace because he had no salvation. What was driving Luther to this level of terror and fear was he desperately wanted to be right with God because he understood God and God's wrath and God's judgment and the reality of eternal punishment in hell. He did fear God, and, and to his credit, he understood this problem. And the fear of God is often a necessary truth that drives sinners to seek reconciliation. Um, and we see in Romans 2 that the, where there is no fear of God before their eyes. Go with me, if you would, over to Romans chapter 2. Verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, you foolish person, every one of you who passes judgment, for in that manner in which you judge somebody else, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, you foolish person, who passes judgment on those, thing, on those who practice such things, and yet does them as well, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and restraint and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will repay each person according to his deeds. Then it gets worse. Go over with me to uh, Romans 3, verse 5. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking from a human viewpoint. Far from it, for otherwise how will God judge the world? But if through my lie the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I also still being judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let's do evil that good may come of it. Their condemnation is deserved. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As is written, and this is from Isaiah 53, 
There is no righteous person, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks out God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, and their tongues they keep deceiving. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and they have not known the way of peace. And now look more closely. Here it comes. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And in that statement could almost be a headline on the Drudge Report or any single morning news feed that you could read today. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So people, if you're trying to somehow earn your way to heaven or earn justification through some self-styled means, through some kind of self-worship or ceremonial worship that we can manipulate, your situation is completely hopeless. Again, this is our problem and the problem that Paul addresses in Galatians. Humility before God, a holy God, is not natural. Sinful pride is natural. For irreligious people, it's worship of self and our desires. For non-Christian religious people, it's pride in pursuing some kind of holiness. So sinners like Luther had to be brought to fear God. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church tried to do this through penance and many other perverse means. Luther was so afraid of God that it tortured him. He wanted God to forgive him. He wanted God to accept him. He wanted to escape hell. He wanted to enter heaven. And even as a monk in an Augustinian monastery, doing everything he could possibly do, he could not satisfy his own heart and find relief for his fear and guilt. He inflicted extreme torment on his soul and body. To quote him, I tortured myself with praying, fasting, keeping vigils, and freezing. The cold was enough to kill me. I inflicted such pain as I would never inflict again. The self-imposed torture, along with his sacraments, pilgrimages, and other deprivations, gave him no peace, no rest, no sense of forgiveness. They only increased the torment. He was doing everything he could, and God was not apparently responding. Francis Schaeffer likens God from an unbeliever's perspective to a gumball machine. I put in a nickel, and God is obligated to give me a gumball. Well, Luther was filling the machine with nickels, and from his perspective, no gumball was coming out. Luther knew that he was by nature a sinner, and that God was by nature and behavior absolutely holy. And the gulf was infinite. He could not cross that gulf. And he left to himself, and left to himself could not satisfy God. Now he was not cavalier about the gulf that existed here. In fact, he was so convinced that it was impossible for any sinner to satisfy God. 
in his own strength and to be accepted by God, he began to feel that God was cruel, brutally cruel, and he actually came to hate God. He walked 800 miles to Rome and back, and when he had gotten to Rome, he ascended the Scala Sancta, the Holy Steps, which are supposedly the steps our Lord went up into Pilate's judgment hall that were transported to Rome, and sinners could gain merit if they crawled up these steps and kneeled at every step, bowed down, kissed the step, and progressed to the top. After having done that, he was still so overwrought by sin that he confessed his sins incessantly up to six hours at a time. He confessed them to his priestly confessor, a man by the name of Staupitz. And Staupitz became worn out by these long confessions. Martin Luther understood the problem. He lacked the understanding of the remedy. Most today in blindness neither understand the problem nor the remedy. Why? Because it's spiritually illuminated. We are dead in our trespasses. We are corpses. In calling and regeneration, it's the Holy Spirit that illuminates our eyes to Christ's remedy and justification through faith alone. Jesus' own satisfaction for our sin on the cross. Not just with Luther, but going all the way back to Job. As man contemplates God, there's that compelling question in his mind. How can a man be in right relationship before God? That was Luther's question. That was Dutch Job's question. And that is the question that every religion in the world attempts to answer. All religion assumes a deity. And all religion assumes a means by which you pacify that deity and move from being harmed by him to being blessed by him. That's what religion is, people. All religion purports to offer an answer to the question, how can a man be made right before God? By works? By keeping all religious ceremonies? All other self-styled religions, other style religions give, hell, give hell's answer. Only the gospel gives the true answer. And that is, but that is the question. How can I be right with God? And that's what we're, going to, that's what we're studying in Galatians. Micah 6. 6. With what shall I come before the Lord? When I bow before the Lord on high, shall I come to him with burnt offerings? With year-old calves? Would the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? With tens of thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Here's a man contemplating being so desperate, so desperate to find righteousness before God, who is contemplating the sacrifice of his own children. Now, we know the Phoenicians and the Carthaginians were doing this. Also, many Israelite groups were mimicking this as well. Today, our sin, our desperation, 
sinful desperation is often couched as a relentless desire for freedom, perceived freedom. Never has there been such a confused understanding of freedom in our lifetime as there is today. Free people think freedom comes from being free to do whatever you want to do, to hear whatever you want to hear, and only what you want to hear. And to have no one impose on you anything you don't want to hear. There are no absolutes in the moral world. There, there, therefore, there be, should be no moral restraints. There is no recognition of accountability, responsibility, or judgment. And so we hear that people demand freedom to say what they want, freedom to think what they want, freedom to do what they want, freedom to disagree, freedom to dissent, freedom from authority, freedom from ethics that are imposed on them. Freedom, freedom, freedom. But they're not free. We're not free. This is a deception. There is no freedom to the unregenerate soul because the soul is bound to sin. The only freedom we have is the freedom to choose a sin that most appeals to us. So there's no freedom from sin. Therefore, there's no freedom from guilt. We see that with Luther. Therefore, there's no freedom from fear. There's no freedom from judgment. There's no freedom from eternal punishment. It's all a lie. It is the deception of our time that people are really free. They are bound to sin to the degree that the Bible says they are slaves to sin, free to choose which sinful master they prefer, but nonetheless slaves. Bound to the chains of transgression and iniquity, headed for a sentence from God that will assign them to eternal punishment. Jesus said in John 8, 32, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. He's talking about gospel truth, justification by faith alone, the truth of the word of God. That is the only thing that sets you free because it alone frees you from the bondage of sin and consequently guilt, judgment, death, eternal hell. The message of Galatians is the message of freedom, real freedom. And that's why it's often called the Magna Carta of religious freedom. No religion wants to offer freedom. Freedom comes along and wants to aid man in finding some freedom from what grips him, what distresses him, what troubles him, what frightens him. And religion takes all forms across a wide spectrum. Some forms are legalistic, and they say that if you really want freedom, you have to keep certain rules, and you have to abide by them. Others say freedom comes by no rules. How do you free yourself from who you are? Your problem is not outside of you. It's inside of you. It's aided and abetted by those who are around you in a culture that defines corruption and standardizes it. But you are the problem. You will never be free until you are a different you. And the only thing... That to do that, Paul says to in Galatians, is the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's nothing in the world that can free you from you. 
And you are a sinner. You are a slave of sin, bound to sin. Whatever path of life you take, religious or irreligious, moral, immoral, good, bad, anything in between, whether you're going to be a philanthropist or a criminal, none of these things will give you freedom. You just choose your form of reaping what you constantly sow, and that is transgression, trespass, iniquity, sin, and death. So where does freedom lie? Galatians chapter 5, verse 1. And this, by the way, is a summation of all of the book of Galatians. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. That's a summation of the book. Freedom comes in Christ in no other place, people. I don't care if you're a legacy of a child of Christian parents. We're baptized as an infant, memorized some catechism as a child, or belong to some political, a certain political party. <clears throat> Unless you believe in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross, and that it's justification by faith alone, apart from any works, your spiritual quest is a hopeless one. So how can I be righteous before God? That's the pleading cry of psalmists, prophets, Job, Martin Luther, how can I escape guilt? How can I escape death? How can I escape eternal punishment? How can I receive eternal life in heaven? All religion gives the wrong answer. Be good, be better, go to about establishing your own righteousness. Only the gospel in Christ gives the right answer. Paul faced this in Romans 10 in dealing with unbelieving Jews. They don't know about God's righteousness, so they seek to establish their own righteousness rather than subjecting themselves to the righteousness of God, which is available to them. I quote in chapter 10 and, and forward, uh, starting in 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. I'm just going to skip down to 18. But surely, but I say surely, they have never heard, have they? On the contrary, their voice has gone out into all the earth and their words to the ends of the world. But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous with those who are not a nation. What a foolish nation I will anger. With a foolish nation I will anger you. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I revealed myself to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, I have spread out my hands all day long to a disobedient and obstinate people. Do we really understand our wretchedness, our stubbornness, our littleness, and how much Christ offers us in his mercy and grace? I'm completely convinced if we really, really did meditate on this truth, 
there'd be a lot fewer divorces, fewer marriage issues, fewer disputes between friends, fewer parenting issues. I'm not telling you anything you don't already know. As a pastor, we're simply here to remind you. We're in the reminding business. So that's Paul's gospel. That's what Luther found when he was teaching Galatians. So in, the, in reality, there are only two possible options to acceptance with God. There is what Jesus called the narrow way and the broad way. They both say heaven. They both don't go there. The narrow way is the way of the gospel, the way of grace, the way of justification by faith. It leads to life. The broad road is the way of works and religion. It says heaven, but it goes directly to hell. There's no salvation apart from belief in the gospel, the true gospel. All other messages, all other religions, all other gospels are demonic deceptions. I want to go back and just to Romans 3 again and read, starting in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. But it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. This was to demonstrate his righteousness because in God's merciful restraint, he lets the sins previously committed go unpunished. For the demonstration, that is, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. Where then is boasting? It has been excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No. By the law of faith. For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Faith, faith, that's the key. Back to Galatians 1. Verse 6. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is not just another account, but there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. This is what Paul is dealing with. Scripture is clear, and the only way of salvation is through faith in Jesus Christ. He is the one mediator between God and man. The one Savior, the world's only Savior. No one comes to, the, to, to God who is the Father except through Him. There is no salvation in any other. Scripture makes that clear. Salvation comes through faith, and faith comes by hearing the Word of God. So regard hearing the Word of God, I look forward to exploring this more deeply on our journey as we study this wonderful book of Galatians together. Uh, in the coming weeks and months. If any of you want to discuss this with me, come up to me or one of our elders, or Howard, 
that we would be happy to discuss this with you. Lord, we are so inadequate, so wretched, so little. Lord, even though we believe, help our unbelief. We need to be reminded constantly of that. Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the, uh, the opportunity to minister in your word, to, to lift your, uh, our voices up in song to you. And we just thank you for this, this coming afternoon and the time we can gather together for the bounty you have uh, provided for us. And we just thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.